0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Monkey Finance live stream. And tonight I have a very special guest, Mr. Matt Money, Matty Moolah, poor boy. What's it, Matty? Poor boy. Uh, Uh, Welcome tonight, Uh, Matt. For those of you that don't know, Matt is a fellow um, YouTuber. And Matt put out a video about me. And uh, I was uh, informed of the video. And I watched the video. I watched it to its entirety. And I said, you know what? I got to bring Matt on. We got to talk about this. Um, I think we're going to agree more than disagree. But you know, we had to, you know, build up the suspense and hype this as like the heavyweight fight of the year. You know, other YouTubers are getting in the boxing ring, and Matt, we're going to do some virtual boxing tonight. So Matt, welcome to the live stream and uh, if you want to tell my subscribers and my viewers a little bit about you. I think a lot of us we might share a lot of the same subscribers, but go ahead and uh, I'm give sure us, give I'm us sure we do. I,
1: I'm definitely sure we do share a lot of the same subscriber base cuz we generally speaking as you said Preach a lot of the same things. But uh, first and foremost, I'm just going to already concede. You already won. Uh, there's there's no challenge here. That. I'm not, that's not why I'm coming on here. It's no battle. I just have the opportunity to, to come and chat. You know, just about investing is, is always a good time. And, uh, you know, really just looking forward to, to kind of just having the opportunity to, to chat with you. Because, like you said, uh, don't have a lot of experience in interacting with you, which is pretty rare and far few between. I interact with a lot of people on the, on the YouTube space, but a little bit about me uh, started back in 2012 when I kind of got involved in engineering when I graduated from college and just been investing ever since. Uh, So basically that's, that's been it. Uh, Just been continuously capital contributions and and just kind of dollar cost averaging my way into the market um, and uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Now I do a little bit of dabbling in a lot of different things, but the majority of my portfolio is in either dividend stocks, index indices. Uh, there is a small portion of the portfolio that's uh, for uh, speculative positions, as you kind of alluded to. Um, I have like probably 10% or maybe a little bit more of my portfolio in those sorts of positions, hoping that they moon. Um, most of them have been decimated over the past, uh, over the past year, year and a half or so. Um, and then I do do a little bit of cryptocurrency. I do some mining I do some NFTs, but majority of my money is in dividend stocks and, uh, index funds. But, uh, yeah, I've done relatively well, um, with it. And I've learned a lot, um, a lot of which actually coming from great partnerships and just, learning through a lot of the people that I met on YouTube over time. So um really just kind of understanding and honing in on my strategy and thinking a lot about who I am and thinking about what works for me. And we can go into it a lot more, but I'll probably just leave it at that.
0: No, that's a good intro. My, my first hard-hitting question for you is, after watching your uh, hit piece on me, You said that the Mookie 3, while a great strategy, you think it's – I focus more on low cost than quality. So why do you think uh, the S&P 500, for example, would be a better fit than the Mookie 3 for the majority of people? Uh, Like, for example, I know Warren Buffett is is a big uh, value investor who says everybody should be an S&P, and I kindly disagree with him. And who am I? I'm nobody to disagree with him. Uh, But you seem to uh, have taken that approach, too, that if you're going to be an index investor, you should – being the S and P. Why do you think that is?
1: I, I think it's one of two things. It's either you, to me, it's a very simple strategy, either the S and P, if you're going to be index investing, only S and P 500 or total stock market index. So one of which is the total 500 large caps, that's the S and P 500. And then VTI or, or some people do ITOT or some people like the mutual fund version, BTSAX I think for, for Vanguard, um, That's like, what, 3,500 stocks, and that's inclusive of mid-caps, small caps, maybe a little bit of micro-caps as well. Uh, So to me, I think that that, that's pretty much all inclusive of what you want. I think the only reason um, to invest, say, external the U.S. is if you want geopolitical diversification outside of the U.S. You think the United States is going to get attacked by some sort of external body that's going to basically deem the dollar useless, and the reason being, I say, you know, that's the only reason why i did to invest X US is because if you look at the SP 500 in particular, I don't know what the stats are for, say, the total stock market index, but they're the, the SP, they're S&P 500. Exactly the,
0: same. Identity, well, so the last 50 years, they had the same performance. Ten, well, I meant uh, uh, more 1. specifically 200. for
1: like uh, international revenue streams. So, like oh, 40% well, of the as- yeah. international S&P revenue would streams kinda, S&P would be greater. p would be greater yeah. than. So, yeah, that 40 percent of the S&P 500 revenues come from external U.S. And so mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of international funds personally.
0: Okay, Are you familiar at all with value funds or no? Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, any academic research from Fama and French that talks about uh, factor investing in a three factor model or no?
1: Not so much, to be
0: honest with you.
1: Okay. I haven't done too much.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I'll explain, and I think this is where we have our um, misunderstanding. My portfolio is based off of academic research, um, and there's like three ways you can look at where you get your source of information. So you can get them from Wall Street, which is like any product that Wall Street puts out, you buy. That's a bad source of information. You get it from Main Street, which is people on YouTube or the Main Street media, but that's a bad that source of information. That's the Jim Cramer of the world. Or you can get it from academia. And those people don't have a conflict of interest. So the way I structured my portfolio is I went back in time and I said, over the last 100 years, what asset classes have worked? And I came across a gentleman. His name is Paul Merriman. He has a foundation. He's he's well-retired now, but um, I even had him on the show and a great guest. But uh, he does great work into researching what asset classes work over a 100 years or 50-year period. Actually, he does 40-year rolling periods, which is pretty realistic for me and you. You've been investing eight years. I've been investing three years. We plan to invest our whole lives. So we're probably going to be invested in the market at least 40 more years, not longer. And historically, what you've seen is uh, the S&P 500 and the total US stock market, they go hand in hand. Um, some years, like in the last 10 years, the S&P outperformed. That's because the small cap and mid cap portions of the total stock market did worse. If you look back in the 2000s, the total stock market outperformed the S&P by about a quarter of a percent. That's because small caps and mid caps did better. And there's this trade off. And there's the same trade off with international historically. Now, it hasn't happened in a while. Uh, The last time international did well was emerging markets in the 2000s. But the last time developed international did well was back like in Japan when, when Japan was the king. of of, of the world in the 70s and 80s so my strategy is really to because i'm not smart enough and i will admit that on on live here on youtube i'm not smart enough to know what the future is going to look like and i don't think anybody can uh whether they want to admit it or not i'd rather own a little bit of everything that goes up and down at different times but overall smooths out the ride so when i found out that international um is not Necessarily, a hundred percent uncorrelated. It's about seventy percent correlated to U.S. markets. I can say with a certain degree that if you look at a price to book ratio on an international fund right now, they're trading very close to book value. That means there's a lot of value in international today. And investors over time, when they hype into uh, U.S. markets, whether it's growth or or the S and P five hundred, eventually it becomes overvalued, and you start seeing what we're seeing today, which was easily predicted if you know if you knew anything about the market. You knew eventually, you didn't know when, but you knew eventually the markets were very frothy and they had to come back to earth. And this is what's happening now. What you'll start seeing is money will start transitioning into international, money will start switching to value. And if you're a dividend investor, you hold some large cap value stocks, I'm assuming you've probably seen outperformance from your dividend stocks versus your growth stocks. Anyways, where I'm going with this, if you look at the previous 10 years, not the last 10, but the previous 10, so 2000 decade, U.S. small cap value did 7.5% compounded annually, not just one year, over that whole 10-year period, while the S&P 500 was negative. Total global, uh, ex did about 3% compounded annually. Of course, most of that is from emerging markets because they were ripping 20, 30% a year while the U.S. Uh, stock market was crashing. Um, so I think it's important to for any investor to... Uh, psychologically know that if they own a little bit of everything, which my strategy, you have 13,000 stocks, eventually you're going to hold a winner. This year, my winner is small cap value. It's not the U.S. stock market. It's not international. So while, yes, the U.S. is getting ripped to shreds, I still feel okay. I have 20% of my portfolio uh, is rolling along in, in U.S. small value. And even in their ne- international, international's done slightly better. So that's where my strategy comes from. It's trying to get everybody the broadest diversification for the lowest cost. And the reason this matters is costs are going to be directly correlated to performance and not in the short term. But eventually, as, as Jack Bogle would say, uh, performance comes and goes, but fees last forever. So if you're invested in a higher cost product, eventually those fees are going to compound on you as your value grows uh, within and you will underperform. There is just no way around it. Um, So, again, I'm not smart enough to pick which asset class will do better. I know historically which one has done, but that's like driving out of the rearview mirror. That doesn't tell me anything what's going to happen in front of me. That would be a bad way to invest, in my opinion, is looking backwards. You don't want to do that. But you do want to have broad global diversification. And I'm not saying you should um, YOLO like 50% into international. I believe in America. I'm I'm proud to be an American citizen. I think America is the strongest economy in the world. But I still hedge 20% of my portfolio against that because I can point to decades and sometimes um, uh, 25-year periods like 1929 to 1954 where the U.S. economy was flat on its face for 25 years. Um, So that's kind of where my strategy is from. I don't know if you knew that part about how I came about. I didn't just uh, sort of uh, pick it on a whim, but it's uh, trying to get the broadest diversification for the lowest cost.
1: No, I I recognize that a lot of... People recommend anywhere between 10 to 20% international and also inclusive of, of some small caps in there as well for the reasons that you mentioned. I think what is probably, in my opinion though, I mean, and, and of course, uh, like you, I'm, I'm always the least intelligent person in the room when I walk into it. Um, I just think that the volatility is what scares 90% of people in the markets. And so when you have that sort of volatility, as we've kind of seen, And obviously the S&P is going through its own volatility period right now, but the small caps have gone through a huge uh, piece of volatility.
0: Let me me stop you there. So small cap value has not. Small cap value is small caps. It's down about 8% this year, while small cap growth is down like 30%. So that's the difference where I get at is what I'm invested in is a lower price to book, meaning that the companies that I'm in have already been beaten down and they tend to perform better in these kinds of markets, um, especially in markets coming out of crashes. Uh, 2020, 2000, 87, uh, small cap value usually does like 100% within two years. Uh, that's the difference. Small cap growth, on the other hand, and, and small cap blend, which is primarily small cap growth, has been beaten down and has been extremely volatile. But again, if you look at the valuations for those companies, they're trading on no P metrics. I mean, they're they're not profitable businesses. So of course, they're going to be beaten down when once uh people realize uh the the market it isn't what it's uh what they thought it was
1: but i guess over a hundred year period are small cap values trading better than the it's growth premium. or is, is yeah, it a yeah.
0: there's a there's about a four percentage point premium since 1927 Over small cap small cap value has done 14 percent. small cap growth has done 9.75 since 1925 that's okay. huge so that's talking it's, it's pretty big over a 40 year period that's talking about uh million versus a million dollars. That's a huge difference. And that's why I'm willing to bet 20% into small cap value. Um, I'm not betting the house here. I'm betting 20% of my overall allocation. Um, And if I'm wrong, which I very well could be, um, it's only 20% of my portfolio. I got the other 60% in VTSAX tracking the market dead on. So I think the idea here when I created this Frankenstein in my head was, Yes, people are afraid of volatility and the average investor will spook over a 10% drop. But if I can make them feel good that one of their funds is doing good while the other two are dropping, I think that will keep them in the game better than seeing uh, and no offense to to your picks, but things like Palantir and Wish and yeah. Sofi, I mean seeing things down 90%, there's no way these people are hanging on. And I, I, I was a big proponent when, when ARC was running at all-time highs last year, and you probably know this. I'm screaming, yeah. this thing is worth 50 bucks, Not because I'm a genius, but because I look at the, the inner works of the fund and I see the PE and the price-to-book ratios of the fund. And I said, there's no way this is sustainable. Whether it's the future or not, I don't care. It's not sustainable. And, you know, you see what happens. And I think ARC is an interesting case because people still haven't fled. They still are in the fund according to the inflows – there's still money flowing, more money flowing into arc than flowing out, which I didn't expect. I expected a lot of people to sell at the top and get out at the bottom, you know, buy mm. high, sell low. Uh, but that didn't happen. But anyways, I don't want to get too much uh, off topic there. But yes, there is a premium, and this is this goes back to the academic piece, and I recommend anybody to read it. It's the Cross section of Returns by Eugene Fama and C- Kenneth French. Uh, they're uh, professors at the University of Chicago, and They figured out that there's three premiums in the stock market. So the first premium is the stock market premium, meaning if you invest in a stock market, you're going to have a premium. If you keep your money in cash, you're not. Right. So there's a premium uh, in the stock market. And the reason that is, is because there's risk associated in the stock market. We can all agree. Right. If you keep your money in cash, your only risk is really inflation. If you invest in the stock market, you have the, the risk of your money going down, the capital uh, portion going down, not just due to inflation, but due to underperformance. The second uh, premium pays in value, and that's value versus growth. Historically, value beats growth. Doesn't always happen, but if you look at uh, periods of 40 years or more, it's very hard to find periods where growth beats value. The reason is growth will go and underperform for 15 years, 20 years, and then shoot up like a rocket ship, three, four, 500%, and then it goes to underperform again. And value is kind of this forgotten child. It's just always working in the background. It usually never has a terrible decade. It's always positive, but it doesn't blow your socks off. But that consistency and not suffering those catastrophic losses like the Nasdaq did in 2000, which pretty much erased all its gains all the way to 2016, has helped value outperform over time. So there's a premium in value. And when you think about it, value is beating up companies out of favor companies. Nobody wants to invest in these There should be a premium for that because all the money is rushing to growth. Why wouldn't there be a premium to be in value? And then the last premium is is the size premium. Large caps versus small caps. Inherently, small caps are riskier than large caps. The reason being is large companies like Apple and Microsoft, they're going to be a lot more stable. They're going to have cash on hand. They can weather market crashes, corrections. I mean, the market can close for 20 years. Apple's going to do all right. But small caps can't do that. So there should be a uh, there should be a premium paid to investors in that field um, that are willing to bet on small, out of favor companies. And I can almost make the argument now some of the small cap growth that you invested in, they're probably turning into small cap values that one day will pay a premium. Not all of them. Some of them will probably. And they're going to skyrocket like you probably could never imagine. But that's where those uh, three uh, factors come into play. And I've modeled my entire investing strategy over the last two years over those three factors. um, And I pretty much shut off the news. I don't care about what people think uh, of my strategy or my opinions. I don't care what wall street thinks, what main street thinks, what YouTube thinks uh, because I'm invested for the next 40 years. And I have evidence on my side that shows if you invest this way over the 40 year periods, the probability that you're going to get a positive outcome is very, very high.
1: Hmm. So, um, I don't disagree with a lot of what you said, but I think, you know, you're you're a person that generally speaking looks over a time span, not year over year. Correct. So what one of the things that you kind of pointed out, which was very year over year kind of perspective, is ARC and the fact that it's underperformed the market over the past year or two. But what do you say over the past five years when it basically Matches the returns of the S&P. Yeah, well,
0: it matches the returns of the S&P. But again, I I go back to performance comes and goes, but costs last forever. If the costs continue to compound and it continues to match the S&P, it's going to underperform over the long run. There is no way you can charge 75 basis points in assets under management year over year and not underperform if you just match the S&P. The idea of investing in a fund like ARK is to whoop the S&P so that expense ratio is somewhat beneficial. But if I'm an investor paying Kathy Wood $350 million a year, that's what ARC investors paid last year, uh, to underperform the market, I would think a lot of them would be very upset and it would be a short leash and a short timeline. And I don't doubt what Kathy research Kathy Wood does, but being a fund manager is different than being me and you. We don't have to answer to anybody. If we underperform the market over the next 10 years, Matt, Who's going to fire us? Nobody. We're, we're our own bosses. If Kathy Wood underperforms, people will fire her by leaving the fund, pulling money out of the fund. And this has been the death trap that every star fund manager falls into is they have a set period of time. I did a video on this. Even Peter Lynch himself had a period, even though he outperformed by double over 13 years. He had a time time frame where he underperformed. And the investors in his funds lost a lot of money and they were very upset and they sold at the wrong time. And it continues to happen and history continues to repeat itself. In the 2000s, there was a lot of Internet star managers because they were investing in the future of the Internet. They all went to have a negative performance over the last 16 to 20 years. So my whole gripe with that is eventually she has to come down to earth. It's, a, uh, it's an investing principle that Jack Bogle um, made famous. It's called reversion to the mean. Essentially what goes up must come down or, and her funds and will probably, and again, I'm guessing here, I don't know, but her funds will probably continue to underperform for extended period of time until uh, they level out, which will be kind of the performance we've seen uh, from large cap growth. Cause that's where I put her in. And historically that should do somewhere about 9.75% until she gets to that um her funds should continue to decline over the long run
1: yeah well i'm just kind of reading a little bit in the chat so apologies if i seem a little yeah. bit distracted but, no worries um no i mean i can i can understand where you're kind of coming from but like you said i mean there's periods and anybody's fun whether it's warren buffett or whether it's um kathy or whether it's ray dalio that you want to perform and it's just like just like the, the indices that we were talking about. In certain years you'll have the small cap underperform, and certain years you'll have the S&P five hundred perform. So who's to really know over the next 20, 30 years which of these indices is actually gonna be be the king? And the answer is we don't.
0: We don't. And but so we know but we know Kathy Wood won't be around 30 years from now. Still will probably unfortunately pass on. Yeah. But uh I guess which the, is another challenge of investing, and I'm I'm sorry to cut you off, but another yeah. challenge of investing in active management is You're at the mercy of the fund manager and you might have a star fund manager, but whoever replaces them can change the objective of the fund upside down. And you're just along for the ride versus if you invest in the S&P 500, you know, you got the 500 most profitable companies in the United States of America at any given point in time. That's very predictable. You know what you're holding, you know what you're investing in. If you have Kathy Wood step down and somebody replaces her, and they have a completely different philosophy on what investment should be, you have no idea what the heck you're still holding. And that's mm. the the other problem with active management is over time, uh, the 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 tenure of a of a good manager is about seven seven and a half years. And I know she owns her own fund; she doesn't work for a fund company, so she can be along as long as she's alive, she can be in charge. But uh, that's that's the other challenge that uh, or the other. Uh, headwind that I see that it'd be very difficult for her to overcome.
1: Yeah. I think one of the key things that, you know, I had a, a gripe with you specifically is kind of your, your area where you think that three funds are the only way to invest. And I don't disagree. I think, I think it's a good strategy to an extent, but I think, the one of the key things that I want to highlight is really the five things, and you alluded to it a little bit in one of your videos when you were talking about when you were leaving Fidelity. I think you have like three things. I have five things that I kind of look at to, to kind of understand how you should be investing your money, right? So first and foremost, an objective. That's kind of obvious, right? Why are you putting this money into the market, into the first place? To kind of understand the other four things that I'm going to be discussing, right? Is it to buy a house? Is it to... To basically, you know, just get your kids through college, what have you. And that obviously forms into what's your what's your time horizon, because obviously if you're investing for the next year, you're going to invest completely different than if you're investing 20, 30 year time horizon. Thirdly, what's your risk tolerance? How much are you willing to lose in in particular sectors or how much are you willing to lose in general if you were to invest? And just as a reminder, nobody should be investing more than they can afford to lose anyway, uh, as you can see, markets can kind of turn twenty percent and drop the hat. Well, well, let me finish. Uh, okay, and then yeah, it, you had the fourth. How consistently are you adding capital to the markets? Right? Are you doing it on a monthly basis, or unfortunately, is this the only thousand dollars you ever have? And your objective is to get to a million dollars? Because depending on the scenario, right? If you're able to chip away a thousand dollars every month, or a couple thousand dollars every month, which I'm fortunate enough to do you're going to be able to take on a lot less risk and get to where you want to be than if you have $1,000 and you're saying, this is the only $1,000 I'm ever going to have. Unfortunately, I'm disabled or I have no ability to generate income. If I have any chance, I have to invest it in something that would be able to generate that outsized return. And then fifth, how active or passive you want to be, right? Because some people get a lot of, I guess, enjoyment out of how active they can be into something. And this isn't necessarily just the equities market. This also includes real estate, being able to flip houses. Maybe they have a talent where they can actually be very good as a handyman, carpentry, or something of the like, and do a lot of that work themselves and be able to to generate sweat equity in some of these properties, which I've seen in my personal life um, and my family life generate massive amounts of returns. And so, I, I kind of look at that broad spectrum to kind of understand, hey, if you got five hours a week that you want to dedicate, like, or not five hours a week, five hours a quarter or five hours a month that you had to dedicate, you probably shouldn't be day trading, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's a multi-hour a day business to be day trading. But let's just say, unfortunately, you do have, you know, 10, 20 hours a day to because you're you're broke or, or you don't have a job or you're unemployed. You might be able to slowly learn on paper how to basically do those things and put it into enactment. Now, as you and I have agreed kind of before the stream, 90% of people should just focus on their careers and invest in some sort of low-cost index fund because at the end of the day, that's the majority of how they're going to be able to generate wealth. And a lot of times, people just don't know how to manage risk appropriately, and they hear what they want to hear at the, at the water cooler. They have selective hearing, and they say, hey, Matt, I, I get this all the time, Moki, and you can hit on me on this. I have a very small speculative part of my portfolio, which is up to like 15%. Wish, Palantir, Virgin Galactic, Alibaba, that's 15% of my portfolio, if that, right? And that's the speculative part of my position, or my portfolio. I have people coming to me saying, Matt, my entire portfolio is down 80%, right? And it's like, you recognize that that's 15% of my portfolio, not 100% of my portfolio, right? And I try to recognize and like tell that to people. Um, so it just goes to show you that some people only want to hear what's coming out of people's mouths at the, around the water cooler. They only want to hear the very crazy speculative investments that are going to 100x in the next day. Um, and, and the unrealistic expectations versus slow and steady wins the race. Um, and I believe, like you said, 90% of people should invest in some sort of index fund. you probably say a hundred percent, but I, I agree, uh, to that extent. And I, uh, we can, we can kind of come to the terms on that for sure.
0: Yeah. Let me go back to, I like those five things. Yeah. I do preach something similar. I preach like four things that you can control. When it comes to investing, which a lot of the times is kind of what lines up with what you just said right now. Now, the thing about what you said about don't don't invest more than you can lose. I think that's a betting gambler's mentality. Um, I invest once, whether whatever the objective is, you sh- your objective should be a, a long-term time horizon. Whether you're saving for college, saving for a house, or your retirement, you should be focused on a long-term time horizon. So you should be trying to invest as much as humanly possible early on because what has shown if you're invested in these low-cost broadly diversified index funds most of your returns are going to come from like the first half of your investments as a matter of fact if you're invested over a 40-year period the first 10 years are going to be worth about 75% of the total value of your portfolio in retirement because that money has compounded. Think about that. That ten thousand that you put in every year for the first ten years has been able to grow. <clears throat> excuse me. Has been able to grow for forty years, thirty nine years, thirty eight years. That is some of the hardest working capital you're going to have. Going into it is don't invest what you're uh, not willing to lose. It, I think is is a bad mindset to have because I'm ready for my money to be locked for my two hundred fifty to go to one seventy five. That's fine. And I will still continue to plow even more and more and more. And what I preach is while you're young, get your income up, get your side hustles up, get your debt out of your life, stop freaking wasting money on credit cards and invest as much as you can in the first 10 years so that the latter half of your investing career, you can go hands off and just kind of coast. So I do disagree with that, but I I understand why you're saying that you're saying that uh, in a sense, uh, don't bet your entire house on, uh, on an investment.
1: Well, I don't know how many people you've talked to, but, um, I know you talk to a lot of people, so I'm not trying to devalue you know anything. Um, but I've had people reach out to me, especially over 2020 time frame, when money was dirt cheap. Right, more the Canadian folks because I do have like a, a a few Canadians that follow me, and they're all like. You know, I've had some people they will call me, right? I'm, I'm by no means a financial advisor, right? I, I do this all for like just educational purposes and, you know, for, for entertainment, to be honest. And it's just kind of like what my opinion is, right? I don't have any sort of degrees or anything specifically for finance. But a lot of people call me, they say, Matt, you know, 1% line of credit, Canadian bank, you know, what would you think if I put it into MJ stocks? Right. And I'm like, well, don't do it. Right. And they're like, well, what would you do if I already did? And I'm like, then why are you calling me? Right. But, but anyway, it just goes to show you like people don't think holistically about it. And next thing you know, you know, an MJ stock might go down 80%. And now they're not only just down the amount of money that they had in their portfolio originally, but then they also have to pay back the $40,000 that they just lost. Um, And, so I I don't know. You kinda have to have like a, a thought process for all ages. I agree with you, right? I'm not somebody that advocates for a, a gambling mentality, trying to throw five hundred dollars, lose it all, and then, you know, the next month try to do the same. I'm with you. I'm more of a snowball kind of guy. Um, I love what's going on right now personally. I mean, I'm investing as much as I can. Uh, and I hope it kind of persists for another two years, to be honest. No because
0: you wanted to persist for your next twenty years. Yeah, I mean, to be very
1: blunt, um, I mean, from the from the bottom of March twenty twenty to the peak of where my portfolio got, um, it was over three and a half x from from bottom to peak. Um, and granted, it was two and a half x.
0: Were yeah. you an arc? One hundred percent an arc? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. No, no um,
1: it, it wasn't. Um, when I say, when I say. I'm not saying um, only on my gains. I'm talking about my capital contributions as well. So I'm talking about the portfolio grew as a whole. I don't know what the total return was, but all I know is I didn't make you know from March 2020 to, let's just say, the beginning of this year, January, April time frame. I didn't make enough uh, to be able to do that. So I was able to at least throw a lot of capital contributions. And I don't you know, I eat well, I live in a decent place, so you know by no means am I not spending money in fact, I probably spend more than I should for sure, but I contributed a lot, and at the end of the day, I think a lot of people miss that you know I think a lot of people don 't just think in uh, think about the total return aspect of things they let lifestyle inflation creep up but i 've done the same to be very frank but I think they just. And you buy the you
0: didn't buy the Lambo yet. so You're still no playing.
1: Lambo, man. I lost the Lambo. Okay, Jesus and the goddamn markets, but, um, but uh, but what was I gonna say? Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people just don't recognize that it's a it's a two piece, um, equation, right? Very, uh, you know, I don't I don't look at a lot of the um institutional knowledge that you kind of have, or like the academic research. But I look at more of like Mr. Money Money Mustache, where it's basically like, hey, you got a two-step equation, right? 5% annual return, net of inflation, and you know, you're putting in 20% a year. You got to invest for, let's just say, 30 years, 40 years before you're going to have something sustainable enough to retire on. And if you're able to put away, say, 80%, then, hey, you're going to be able to retire in 5, 10 years, no problem. So I just it's a two-side equation, but I think a lot of people always say, well, I can just double what the market's doing, and they don't ever really think about the risk aspect of it. And they end up behind, and then they leave the markets in total, and then, like you said, they kind of get behind on the time aspect of things, not contributing early on, because something comes up. They get upset, market's too hot, they don't just continue to add every single month like they should.
0: Yeah, I get it. and. One other question I have for you, I'm trying to, I've been asking this to a lot of people who are, uh, and I know you've, I don't think you've been a index fund investor. I mean, you've had the S&P 500 in your 401k, but I've rarely heard you talk about it until like, I've seen a few of your videos where now you're talking about you're plowing everything into the S&P. But yeah. when you were primarily a stock picker and you probably know that you, uh, over the period that you've been investing, you've underperformed the market. Oh yeah. How, how do you? how do you know that you're a good stock picker? How do you know that Matt poor boy money can pick stocks well enough uh, to be labeled a good stock picker? What what are the criteria of a good stock picker?
1: Matt money is a horrible stock picker. So I, I think I told you early on, I don't know if I said it on the stream yet, but by not investing in index funds, I have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in opportunity costs. And I've been very open about that in my live streams. I've been very open about that. I think, I don't know too much on videos, but I know for a fact on live streams, I'm very open about that. Very early on in my career, I work in oil and gas, I guess, to preface that. I work for one of the super, super major oil and gas companies. Um, I work deep water Gulf of Mexico as an engineer. Obviously, 2013, 2014, things were great. Oil was 180 dollars to $100 a barrel. And then 2015 kind of hit. Oil went from $100 a barrel to $28 a barrel. And I saw a lot of people just starting to get let go. And that had a huge, massive impact on me. Uh, I started off like a lot of people saying, penny stocks are going to go to the moon. You know, I'm going to, you know, and that lasted about six months. And I kind of gravitated towards dividend stocks. And um, that kind of made me feel good. And then I saw everyone sort of getting their walking papers. And I was like, oh, shit, right? This can happen to me in any moment. And so for a very long time, I didn't care. Uh, about what my total return was. I cared about the dividend income because my thought process was, if I unfortunately got let go, then um, I have that opportunity to make a little bit of income and make ends meet and work at a corner store or work anywhere and be able to get that excess income. And so the thought process for a very long time was get dividend income as fast as possible. And a lot of people would ask me, but are you outperforming the market? But are you outperforming the market? And for a very long time, I would say until 2019, 2020, I didn't care because um, I was just like, I was still in this mode, right? Even when things started to get good in 2018 again, it started to get rocky. And it wasn't really until I saw a lot of the dividends coming in, 14000 one year, uh, $21,000 next year then it was like, oh, maybe I don't need the dividends as much as I thought because it's just being reinvested. And that's when I kind of recognized, I was just like, you know what? Like, I've been kind of thinking about this all wrong, and I've just noticed the the pattern of, hey, I know for a fact I've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into this, and I'm not nearly getting the return, and I've lost opportunity costs of not being into the markets, and coupled with just acknowledging I'm – at that point, I had gotten about 400K in, like, early 2020. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm not going to be – I don't – you know, where I was in my career and knowing how people talked about me in the business, I probably knew that if anything unfortunately happened, I would probably be safe in my job. And if I wasn't, then I recognized, well, if – I needed to move all the dividends. I can do that retroactively rather than doing it initially. And so I was like, let me just start to get a little bit more balanced in how I'm investing. And that's why I started picking up Google and and Amazon and Bitcoin and, and some of those other opportunities that help balance things. And I've done relatively well on a lot of those things. Some of my initial shares in Google are up over 100%. I think... I started investing in it when it was about a thousand. Obviously, now it's above 2,200 or whatever it is now. Um, Amazon, I'm down on massively just because I invested in it way too much. Uh, actually, I wouldn't be surprised if some of my initial shares are pretty good. But anyway, um, overall, down on Amazon, still up on Google. But it just kind of just made me recognize a little bit about overall uh, that not everything is, needs to be relying on a dividend. And then I started to recognize the individual risk of securities that you don't even know might come into play. And I've seen oil companies just one unfortunate thing happen. And next thing you know, the value of the company just dries up Um, and just the inherent risk associated with it. Companies fall out of favor for no reason where they lose 30, 40% of their value over not overnight, but over the course of a couple months for literally no reason other than a hedge fund moves out or something the like. So it's kind of been this gradual transition from penny stocks for six months, dividend stocks for a long time. And then really just recognizing, Hey, I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. Um, Indexes are probably just the best way to go. And also like reduce the amount of volatility in there. And then also what I recognized is, as you alluded to, I'm not a great stock picker. And I knew that when I was dividend investing because I didn't care about it. And I recognized it even more so because I, like a lot of people don't know when to sell appropriately. And uh, lastly, I recognize that my time is likely better spent elsewhere, either working on my job or working on a side hustle uh, that I can take that money and make hundreds of dollars an hour, if not thousands of dollars an hour and take that money and put it in the stock market and allow that to grow at say eight to 10% a year, rather than trying to spend hundreds of hours to try to beat the market, which isn't guaranteed. Right? So my thought process was, like you said, very early on, I'm the least intelligent person in this room and this chat, everything.
0: I didn't say that about you. Well, I know
1: I'm saying it. Um, okay, that's different. I it's very different.
0: That
1: no, that, that's very different. Um, I'd rather spend my time knowing what I can do, which is use my brain to generate income and then put that in the market because it's easier for me. And I know for a fact, I'm not a good stock picker.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that um, that you're open about that and how you came to where you're at. I think
1: well, yeah, every, hundreds of thousands every, of
0: dollars lost in opportunity. That's, a, that's okay. Guaranteed. That's, that's okay. That's a. College is expensive sometimes. That's a learning lesson. But I think a lot of us come to embrace index investing because we come to the realization that uh, to answer the question, how do you know you're a good stock picker is you can't answer it. Uh, There's very little skill involved. Um, For example, if I stepped into the ring with Mike Tyson and we fought for five seconds, you'd know who's more skilled at boxing. Mike Tyson would whoop me up and down the ring. If me and you pick stocks over the next 10 years, there's no no way to determine, are you more skilled than me or am I more skilled than you? So it's a flawed system of trying to say, well, this person's a good stock picker when the metric you're using is, what, performance? Okay, well, maybe over the last 10 years, you've outperformed Warren Buffett. Does that make you a better stock picker than Warren Buffett? Probably not. The other problem I have with people that pick individual stocks is they use Warren Buffett and they quote uh, Peter Lynch like it's that easy, like, you can just study all you want and you could be like Warren Buffett. Answer is no you can't uh, and you could try all you want. you can do everything that he does, but you're not going to have the outcome that he does because he's dealing with billions and you know we're dealing with thousands of dollars. so we're not going to have his uh, his type of uh, uh, performance at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm actually impressed that you came to that realization on your own. I did too early on, I started in in penny stocks and cryptocurrency and then I moved on to dividend stocks. And that's my first $10,000 invested. And then after that, I just cut the cord and went to index investing because I knew my time uh, spent elsewhere would be way more profitable than me trying to uh, pick individual securities that at the end of the day, I might have gotten a good entry point. But like you, like you mentioned, how do you know when to get out? Um, if, you, if you get in that 10 bagger early on, say you get in a Tesla in 2019, which I was, I got out pre-split. Why? Because I thought there's no way in hell it's going anywhere past a thousand. Then they split, and now it's at a post-split thousand dollar price. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's very difficult, um, and you'll probably beat yourself up and second guess yourself, and and make the wrong move. Uh, and your the the data supports that the average active retail investor returns two and a half percent a year compound and annually. The reason is they go in the wrong stuff at the wrong time. They go into value when growth is in favor. They go into growth when value (laughs) is in favor and and vice versa. And they're just flipping and flopping, turn over their portfolio 100, 200, 300 percent versus you buy and hold. You never sell unless you need the cash and you go focus on what you're good at. If Matt's good at being a businessman, he's going to be a businessman. If he's good at being a a petroleum engineer, he's going to be a petroleum engineer. Um, That, I think, is probably the biggest takeaway anybody here watching tonight can take away is focus at what you're good at to build up your capital, dump the money into a passive uh, index fund. If you want to speculate, leave a portion of your portfolio, 5%, 10%, if you will, if you get the itch. I like to just go to the casino when I get the itch myself. I'm an avid blackjack player, so I just go down to my Rivers Casino here in Chicago and take $1,000 with me, and whatever happens, happens. Um, That's just how I like to be entertained when I want to speculate. But speaking of uh, speculating, I want to talk about cryptocurrency. I'm probably one of the few people that still don't believe in cryptocurrency. I've had a lot of people try to convince me. And I actually, I shouldn't say I don't believe in it. I believe in cryptocurrency. I don't believe in which is going to be the right one. So how do you get your crypto exposure? I'm curious about that. And you also mentioned earlier before we went live, you do some mining too. So talk about that. I'm very interested in that.
1: Mm. Well, just first and foremost, my battery and my phone's dying. So if it does, I'll join on my computer. So um, just if I cut out. You know, I, I didn't hang up uh, uh I guess what's the word promptly or whatever. Definitely. Um but uh cryptocurrency, yeah. There's eighteen thousand of them, man. Nineteen thousand now, man. Nineteen thousand, yeah. Jesus. Um eighteen thousand nine hundred and ninety of them are <laughs> are worthless. Um and there's probably ten of them, which I think are actually pretty good, but the problem is how do you choose one just like the um just like the stock market right how do you choose just one that's going to be the best opportunity and it's difficult i mean we've seen ones come into favor and immediately drop right we've seen dogecoin which was a meme come into favor and just completely drop out of the top 10 we've seen luna which was a huge favorite by many and then next thing you know something you know drastic kind of happens and somebody you know, puts on a, a, an attack and it drops to basically zero, where they stop actually running the blockchain overall. Right, loses over a hundred percent, or not over a hundred percent, but about hundred percent of the value of it um, from all-time highs within a matter of months, um, and and ninety-five percent of it being within, uh, you know, a couple days. Yeah. Um, uh, cryptocurrency, man, it's it's an interesting world. If if it was. Up, up to me, there's a few products evolving, but I would probably do a cryptocurrency top 10 and invest appropriately into it. And the ones that you know, kind of come in and out of favor can come in and out of favor. But I think overall, in that cryptocurrency top 10, the total overall top 10 will continue to grow up and to the right, kind of like an S&P 500. Uh, It's kind of going to be like an actively managed mutual fund, kind of like the S&P 500. Um, And with that, you know, you'll have stuff come in, you'll invest in it, you'll have stuff come out, and it moves into whatever replaces it. So I think you have that kind of active active part to it that would really help. But
0: I'm trying to remember, what was exactly the question? Well, I was saying, how do you get your crypto exposure? Do you uh, invest in one coin, two coins? I guess I'm seeing now you're investing in 10 coins. Yeah, for a
1: while. um, Right now, I only have, um,
0: majority of it
1: is Ethereum or Bitcoin. Bitcoin being the highest one of them. For a while, I was investing in GDLC, which is a grayscale digital large cap, which is kind of trying to do what I was talking about. But it's still not perfect. It was only like the top. Six. At one point, it was top four, then it was top six, and I don't know where it's at now, but it got to the point where I think in early to late 2020, it was trading at 300% coin value, basically, or like net asset value. And so I said, F that, and I sold it, and I put it into GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And uh, that's been doing relatively well. I'm up, I think I bought that for like nine bucks a share. I don't know what it's at now, but it's still up over 100 or so percent since when I bought it. But if it was me, I would I would focus on really trying to stay away from individual currencies and, and trying to find a good ETF that represents the top 10, kind of like what we have, even the top 20. To, be Why honest. not top
0: 100, like a low cost index fund of crypto, the Nasdaq 100 for crypto or is there not I 100 good uh, coins? To I, do I,
1: I honestly there could be to be very frank, um, but I, I think I really don't think that there's more than 15 to 20 that are actually going to be worthwhile in the very, very long term. And so I if it was, in my opinion, if you were to have the the top 100, then you'd have so much turnover in the bottom 80 of that 100 that I think it would just put a huge drag on the portfolio personally. Okay. Um, but I, I, I could be wrong, right? I don't have the research to be very blunt, but I just know that over the past six months, it's gone from 11,000 cryptocurrencies to 19,000. And I've literally been a part of, not a part of, but I've, Invested in just for fun, one that somebody made out of thin air and was able to basically make nine million dollars within a matter of minutes just by basically issuing it out to people and being able to, like, in over the course of say two to three days, it went to zero, right? It, it came up, it got to a dollar, and over the course of time, all the basically everything was transferred. Out, People bought basically the coins that that person had kind of made and kept for themselves, and that person walked away with $8 million, $9 million, and everybody else walked away with zero because that person had offloaded their entire wallet. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting that people can do that. And it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of different ways that people can utilize that for their own benefit, but a lot of people don't recognize. They can get caught behind the hype, just like Dogecoin, cheap, all that stuff um anyway
0: no i i get it and part of the reason why i'm so skeptical about crypto and i don't promote it on my channel is because when i talk to the average investor i want them to stay away from stuff like that that uh one is a very high probability of uh, a very poor outcome right like i hear a lot of crypto people try to use stats like oh the market always comes back or this is like gonna double again but you're you're talking over cryptos existed really over the last what realistically over the last four years I know Bitcoin's been around since 2009 but nobody was buying you know the guy was trading freaking 40 Bitcoin for two pizzas or whatever so it wasn't a serious thing until like 2018 I feel like it put it on the map that bull run and I don't think there's enough data to support that it is a viable long-term investment option. And for the same reason, I don't think gold is or silver or any commodity or anything that isn't income producing. Or, uh, so I recently heard Warren Buffett explain to it this way, and I thought it was really, really well put. He said, you can give me 1% of all the farmland or apartment buildings in the U.S., and I'll write you a check for $25 billion. You can give me all the Bitcoin in the world. And I wouldn't take it for twenty five. And he said, what would I do with it? If I own all the Bitcoin, I need another somebody to sell it to. So that's where the greater fool theory comes in. I need somebody to buy this non-income producing asset from me for a higher price. That's how I make money. Versus you invest in equities. We know these are businesses that are producing goods and services that over time, the value of the market cap of the company grows. You invest in bonds. These are interest coupons that you're collecting. A very specified amount from whether it's treasuries or corporate, you know, you're getting there is some, of course, risk with the corporate of default, but you still know you're getting a set rate and then you're getting your money at the end. Cryptocurrencies, you have no idea what the heck's going to happen. Um, mm. maybe a new coin comes out that's better than all these other coins. Mm. Maybe there is an existing coin that's going to be the best. We don't know yet. Maybe Bitcoin is the answer and we just uh, it's taking longer for it, like I've seen. Price predictions of 500,000 or a million, which puts it 19 trillion. I don't know how many, what's the circulating supply? 21 million? How For many Bit- Bitcoin, 21 yeah. million. So it's a 21 trillion market cap of Bitcoin uh, where to go to that price. I just don't see that uh, because what's the US market cap? 43 trillion, 44 trillion of all these companies in the United States. I just think it's people talk about it when it does really well. And then when we're in a bear market for crypto, people don't talk about it. Now, I know there's a lot of people. I see Ryan in the house. Ryan is an advocate, supportive of Bitcoin Cash. And I know he's about Bitcoin Cash. He lives that life. But most people... Yeah, he does. He does. He he freaking does a lot of stuff. But most people are not about that life. And most people are in it to make a quick buck, turn it, and get the hell out. And those people... Uh, Again, whether you want to take my thousand dollars and go to the casino with me, or you want to take your thousand dollars and put it into whatever coin, perfectly fine. But calling it an investment is kind of where I start having problems because you can't use terms like the market always comes back, or you just dollar cost average into this because something that drops fifty percent twice in one year, I mean, how do you dollar cost average into that? What if you're buying it both? You know, it's just there's no way. the The idea of dollar cost averaging is over time and not five or ten years but over 20 30 years yeah. you're putting capital that you've earned into the market but ideally lump sum investing is what you should be doing if it's an income producing asset and you know over time is going to be worth more and i can't see that for 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 any cryptocurrency and therefore i can't uh, come on my channel and recommend it to anybody i've dabbled in them especially early on I've, I've i've held and my wife my wife outperformed me in 2020 when did dogecoin go up 2021 or 2020.
1: 2020, I think.
0: My wife, my wife had 50 bucks in Dogecoin from 2017 and she just forgot about it in her Robinhood account. And then we looked at our performance and I mean, she was she blew me out of the water oh. um, with her. I think she had like 14,000 percent return or something. But a lot of people were buy- the thing with crypto is the price got so high is because that's when you had the most amount of people buying in. So while she had an average share price of you know, a tenth of a penny uh most people were paying 70 cents for something that was literally created to be a joke um so that's kind of my stance I, uh, and i i get uh, a lot of hate for for not willing uh to adopt and say you should have crypto because i don't think you should have crypto in your portfolio
1: i agree and i disagree um so i agree that obviously you know you kind of heard me say it you know 99.9 percent of these things are going to zero right uh, or have zero utility and so are therefore worthless I think the way you look at it, which is understandable, is a very American-focused way to look at it, and I don't mean that, you know, to, to not, hit it. Yeah, you. but I
0: wasn't—I wasn't born in America. Just saying, so you know. I'm an Eastern European.
1: Okay, well then maybe this will. It would, it would well have a to lot to of you.
0: utility in, in the country that I came from. Exactly. So that, that's.
1: So I lived in Trinidad and Tobago for a little bit, and a lot of that is an import country where they import a lot of goods from the United States, and unfortunately, because of the way that their market is set up, it's very difficult for them to import goods personally because you need the U.S. dollar. But the big corporations in the country also need U.S. dollars. So who's much more in favor, the big four corporations in the country that import stuff to get the U.S. dollar or the people that live in Trinidad and Tobago? And so the actual currency conversion is like 6.8 to 1. It's like 15% of a dollar as a Trinidad dollar, basically. And so what ends up happening is people end up having to pay eight and a half to one or eight to one versus the 6.8 to one that they should just to be able to get $1. So here you are, you know, having to pay a 20, 30% premium to get the same dollar than being able to get and use your Trinidad dollars to be able to buy anything. I think that's very unfortunate. Yeah. And maybe um, this rings. The bell for anybody maybe in Africa, because I know in Nigeria, Bitcoin trades for a premium. And I know a couple other countries that do the same. But I think you need something like a Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin the answer? I don't know. Just like you kind of alluded to. But I know that there needs to be something like it to be able to help a global economy run at its most efficient manner. And uh, I, I believe in that to an extent which is why I think the top 10 cryptocurrency ETF or whatever the hell it is, is something that I would get behind. But I agree with you wholly that it's, for the majority of people, it's probably just like to stay out of it because of the memeology of it, of the, the I guess, uh, fanatical nature of it, of the speculative nature of it, right? They're going to invest in a doge coin rather than something that might actually have a utility value. Yeah. And uh, with that, they might say, wait till it goes down 99% and then sell. And then they'll just be like, it'll turn them off from all markets, right? Not just cryptocurrency, but all markets in general. And I see that happen quite a bit. But I, I didn't really believe, I came from a very American mindset of currency where I was like, why would you ever invest in a cryptocurrency until I lived in a country where the US dollar was scarce? And because I was American, because of my accent, people would come up to me and ask me, Do you have U.S. dollars on you? When you go back to America and you come back, can you bring back hundreds or if not thousands of dollars for me? I will pay you a premium. And I'm like, then just go to those guys. And they're like, no, like, I'll pay you a premium, but those guys have to buy from it more. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'll do it for a favor. Like, you don't have to pay me that much. I still made some because I still had to spend in Trinidad dollars when I was there but for street food or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, that's just sad. Right, that like you can't go to your bank and be like, "Hey, it's a Canadian bank." Like they have Scotia Bank. They have, um, I forget what other banks they had down there, but like Scotia Bank was a big one. And it was just like you couldn't go to the bank and be like, "Can I get U.S. dollars?" It was it was really really sad. Um, whereas I could go to the bank and go get pesos. I can go, you know what I mean, and get a pretty yeah. favorable yeah. exchange rate, and it's not that big of a deal. Um, so it's uh, that's what really made me think. Um, And, you know, a lot of times when I hear from my friends in Trinidad, they ask me about, hey, can you transfer me some Bitcoin? Or can you transfer me this? And I'll, you know, be able to send you, you know, X, Y, or Z. Because it's easier for them to do. And, uh, yeah, I think even, for example, some of my Trinidadian friends, if they were to land in, say, Miami and try to go to the ATM, the max they could pull out is like 100 bucks a day even wow. though it's their money, right? Like, it's it's really sad.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. In uh, my home country, I send money there every year in U.S. dollars, and they have to go and exchange in the local currency, which is, I think, like 1.8 right now. So for every dollar, you get 1.8 of the KM, which is the mark. And, yeah, the bank is going to take, after the bank fee, it's going to be like 1.75. The thing is, if I sent them crypto in there's no way of guaranteeing the $1,000 I send is going to be worth $1,000 when they go to pull it in a week when the market goes down 25%. Mm-hmm. So would you rather pay a little exchange fee uh, and get your money or would you rather hold on to something and wait and pray that hopefully it comes back to the value that I originally sent? And that's my biggest problem is I'm seeing that uh, 80 90% drop in a year is not going to be uh, – where it's at as far as uh, cryptocurrencies being a um, a viable currency. It's just not. if and I know the dollar loses value. Of course, every time there's inflation, more dollars are printed, the value of our dollar is less and less. But we don't see that, I guess we do see that when we go to the grocery store, but we don't see that day-to day 20% drop. Can you imagine if you know the value of the dollar dropping? Uh, what did this last crypto crash happen? It was like 25, 30 percent in uh, seven days. If that happened, that that's we're scared about 7% inflation. That's like freaking uh, uh, 7% a month inflation. You know what I mean? So I'm just not there yet to uh, jump on board. And, and it always goes back to I didn't invest in currencies before. Now that they're virtual, I'm still not going to invest in them. I, I completely see the use case, but I don't uh, believe that I'm smart enough to know which one will be that. Oh, I'm with one. you there. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for a crypto index. Maybe then I'll uh, say five percent or so. If you, I still haven't seen
1: the. I still haven't seen one where I'm like, okay, cool. I, right now, I'm I'm still speculating on Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, because I personally just I, I think if there were to be some that end up doing the best, it may, maybe it's just a bad reason, but they've been around the longest, Ethereum. I don't know. I'm just going to throw out a number. It's probably, I know it's wrong. 70% of all the cryptocurrencies are based off of Ethereum. So it's like almost like its own individual sort of network that everyone is building these cryptocurrencies off of. So it's like, and that's why gas fees are astronomical because everybody's using the Ethereum network to be able to move things around. They're not using like a, you know, Doge might be different, but they're not using like a, I don't know, milk, milk coin, blockchain right the milk coin is based off of the ethereum network right so it's like you have all these cryptocurrencies that are built on top of these layer ones um for that reason and that's the real power of it and and i think smart contracts are pretty dope
0: yeah i I, I am
1: doing like the nft stuff which i think is pretty interesting it's more for a hobby to figure out what the hell's going on and and how it's built but it's pretty cool because like for example um the NFTs that we're building, I have other people that are helping me. I can set up their wallets so that as soon as this wallet gets any money, it automatically sends 20% to that person, 1%, and I don't have to do anything. It's literally just uh, setting it up. And, and the smart contract aspect of it is pretty cool. Um, is it mind-blowingly worth trillions of dollars? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we haven't gotten, maybe it's still in its infancy and it'll get cooler. But uh, I'm with you. I, I, I think that, you know, 99.9% of it should go to zero. There's going to be 0.1% that might actually show some value, but is yet to really truly be seen.
0: Yeah, no, that's, um, I think that's a good way to end it unless you have someone else. Um, I think this has been a helpful conversation for us to come closer to where we we weren't that far away to begin with. We um, weren't. No, yeah, we, I, just, we were, I just
1: needed somebody to, to yell at um, yeah. or, or blame. Yeah, and to be honest, you were stealing a lot of my Fidelity revenue. I was on, on YouTube. I made thirteen
0: so, thousand dollars off just Fidelity videos, so I'm yeah. glad uh, that I can pass along some of that pie to you. Yeah, now. I got
1: a couple videos that are you know fifteen hundred, seven hundred fifty bucks. Yeah. So it's Dude, a those, good yeah, revenue generator. Yeah, I shouldn't are. be saying that on live because <laughs> you're going right. to have a bunch of people creating <laughs> Fidelity videos now.
0: I encourage it. I I know there's a. Uh, fellow youtubers in here guys fidelity videos are uh, where it's at matt, well, I told, matt and I, told I can
1: dave i told dave i was like you need to capitalize under charles schwab man yeah because like, nobody's charles, exactly.
0: nobody's talking about charles dave you got a hidden gem there hidden freedom you got you got a hidden gem in schwab but and uh, he said he
1: said a couple of them done well but then some of them just don't really do anything and i'm like you got to make a portfolio of them and sometimes yeah. it takes six months the next thing you know they just rocket out of nowhere I think, yeah, I
0: think I average like twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 views a month from old Fidelity videos. They just keep like some are at 80,000, 90,000 views. They just keep going like there. And the thing that I do is my content is not time specific. So what I talk about is like time tested principles that could work today, 10 years from now, 10 years ago. So I feel like if you make content that isn't time like um, and if you have some time, we can get into this. But like those hype stocks. Um, early on, whenever the SPAC deal happened, like March of 2020, I jumped on board and bought Nikola, right? At like 13 bucks a uh, share. And I, I sat on it. And then like two months later, the thing exploded to like 100 bucks. And I got out at 48. And I started seeing the content on YouTube went from like dividend investing to buy the next stocks are going to 10X. And those YouTubers exploded. And I knew a few, Keenan Grace was one I knew when he was like, 40 subscribers deep me and him talked and now he's got half a million but the content was buy this 10x stock and i didn't agree with that content and i decided to take the the path less traveled and start doing the fidelity stuff which you were already doing yourself and you don't do this content i'm not saying you but there's a lot of youtubers that grew uh, because they can say you know buy this next 10x stock and then watch their performance over the next year and it's like they fat they fall flat on their face because of pushing that hype stuff so mm-hmm. i i was happy with with the growth of my channel uh it took off with fidelity and now i'm uh presuming with the vanguard stuff that's going to tie together with my philosophies and at the end of the day i got a lot of hate for that video you weren't the only one i mean if you read some of the kai got like 138 comments 50 50 on the likes and dislikes i usually get like 99.9 percent likes it, it was 50, 50, 50
1: on this, like 50 lights. people,
0: people, wow. people were inferior. And I am trying to figure out, and this is my, my viewers, my viewership. And I'm trying to figure I said, I, I try to be as transparent as I can. And yes, at the end of the day, could I have just said no to that fidelity credit card and went about my way? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could have. And, but A week later, Fidelity came out with like crypto and 401ks and Fidelity start. They're starting to shift away from things that I like. And then I had a few private members reach out and be like, hey, Fidelity reps called me trying to sell me on this, you know, next stock that's going to do." I'm like, hmm. So I I, never had a
1: Fidelity rep call me.
0: Oh, man, they should. Maybe uh, because I'm poor. No, they they got you flagged as a high net worth. They're going to get. (laughs) There he goes. They're going to get a hold of you, Matt. Uh, But anyways, people, I I don't understand why people get so upset with the decisions that I make for myself. Um, I never said Fidelity is a bad platform. I mean, I'd be foolish to say that they have some of the best low cost index funds available. Um, I never said don't use Fidelity just because I moved some of my money. I still have about $150,000 of Fidelity, but I moved some of my money out of Fidelity doesn't mean that I all of a sudden despise Fidelity or or that I'm a a terrible person, but uh, apparently a lot of people online think that, and that's fine. You guys are open to whatever opinion you want to hold of me. Uh, If you think that I'm a shill now because I don't want to push Fidelity, that's fine. If you think that I'm stupid because I left Fidelity, that's fine. If you think that credit cards are the greatest thing alive and I don't, that's fine. That's your prerogative. At the end of the day, it's your money, not my money. And I'm trying to help you understand a better way to uh, not just save your money, but to invest your money. If you don't think my way is the right way, then do it the way you think is best. And I will support you on that. I know I bash a lot of stocks. I bash a lot of crypto. I do that within reason to explain to people that, you know, this is gambling and this is what happens. Same thing when I talk about credit cards and there's Stanley Stanley. By the way, guys, uh, check out, uh, check out Stanley. Stanley, where's your other channel, the the uh, credit card channel? Post that in the comment section, Stanley, my uh, private member there. But I I try to help explain people that I went from being eighty seven thousand dollars in in debt and uh, borrowing money on credit cards, car loans, personal loans, motorcycle loans, student loans, you name a loan, I had it, and I live my life. There it is, the credit frog. Let me put that up for Stan, the man. I lived my life um, that way for a long time and I was broke. And when I finally said no to everything and I said, I'm going to do it my way, that's when I started to make money and 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 uh, be um, much better well-off than, than what I was when I was doing these things. So now I share these things with you. Um, some of you know, some of you don't know. I'm also a financial coach. I have my own financial coaching business. I help clients get out of debt. I help clients understand how to save money. I deal with people day in and day out that suffer with credit card debt. And I know the majority of people that, that maybe watch me can uh, can say, well, we're responsible credit card users. I, I will probably call BS on that. Some of you are, very few of you. The majority of you overspend on credit cards. And because I see these things in, in my real life when I'm coaching clients, I'm willing to bet that uh, you can... Send me your credit card statement, of course, black everything out, and I'll probably find a couple hundred dollars worth of overspending. It's just how it is. I will find that. But when you're more in tune with your spending, whether you're using cash or a debit card, uh, it hurts a lot more. It's a little bit of a psychological effect when the money leaves your account versus this uh, arbitrary... credit line that you can spend up to um it's different when i have a when i have 200 bucks in my checking account and i know i go to the grocery store i can only spend 200 my mindset is different and maybe some of you say well that's a poor mindset to have again it goes back to invest often invest early save all you can so that for the first 10 years of your life you can put away as much money as you can after that you just sit back and you coast and you can actually enjoy the rest of your life so that's my message matt thank you so much man for coming on I really appreciate it. Uh, It's always good to get other people's perspective. And Matt will has said it. He's not the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to say it. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Everything I know is because I've learned from somebody else. We don't magically just, uh, we're not magically born with this brain and and we know everything. I read a lot. Um, I read probably more than I should, but I read a lot. um, And that's how I know the stuff that I know. And then a lot of the other stuff when it comes to handling money is from personal experiences, like how Matt had seen that, hey, I've uh, underperformed the market and I paid this tax of $300 or three, however much you said, Matt. Uh, you had to go through that experience to know that. Same thing with me and and credit cards. I know that when I have a credit card in my wallet, I overspend. And it starts to maybe be a few hundred bucks and it turns into a few thousand bucks. Instead, now I invest that few thousand bucks a month and it's it's worked out for me. So please... At the end of the day, what are, I'm just a person. So it, it, if you're that offended that I've left the platform, then I think you need to look at yourself. Uh, honestly, you do. Uh, because one is it doesn't matter whether you use Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, even um, Robin Hood, dare I say. But if you're invested in quality products at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Low cost, broad diversification. And, and know that you're plowing money as often as possible, you will become successful. And there's plenty of people in this room, Matt Money and, and Hidden Freedom Dave, who are very successful at what they do. Uh, both of them are millionaires. I think, Dave, you're a multimillionaire. These people have done it their way. And if you want to see how they do it, go watch their channel. Could you replicate their success? Maybe, maybe not. You probably need to uh, get your income up, like Matt talked about earlier, and get some of those skills that help you get your income up, which at the end of the day, also, you're not going to have huge returns if you don't invest a lot of money in the market. If you put in a thousand dollars, you're not gonna you're not gonna ten x that to ten thousand. But if you put in ten thousand a year, after ten years, you would have invested ten thousand, but you still would have gotten a doubling of the growth of your money too. So now you have two hundred thousand, and if the market just continues to give you momentum and it does the a doubling every seven years. In 17 years, you're gonna have 400 thousand, and then in in uh, 24 years or 23 years, no, 24 years. I'm sorry, my math is off. You're gonna have uh, what did I say? It's 400 thousand. You're gonna have 800 thousand, and then it just it snowballs on itself. So again, invest often, invest early, get your income up. That's the message. If you want to use credit cards, be my guest. I, I can't stop you. If you're a client of mine then you know you're not using credit cards. Although I mean, I guess you pay me, so it's up to you if you want to use them. But most of my clients have stopped using credit cards, so let's just say that. Um, and then um, uh, the last point is invest in, in, in products that are going to produce uh, an expected return that you can easily calculate and not something that's speculative in nature. But if you want to invest in something that's speculative in nature, go ahead. Um, again, it's not my money, it's your money. Please do whatever you think is best with it. And um, you're probably not going to hear me uh, talk bad about your investment strategy if that's what you believe in. Just like I believe in mine, you believe in yours. So thanks again, guys. I really appreciate everybody in the chat. I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody. I'm just going to quickly see if we have any private members in the house. I know I got Stan the man there. Um, speaking of stand the man, here's a guy who has a credit card channel. So you guys think I'm anti credit card. One of my private members, there's the channel, the credit frog. He started his own YouTube channel. I'm so proud of him. His quality is just top notch, way better than me. And he just talks about credit cards and I support him and his channel. And we can agree to disagree. Uh, Stan wants to use credit cards. He's got like Amex $500 annual fee credit cards. Cool. Where's my wallet? I don't know where my wallet is. I got two debit cards, a business debit card and a personal debit card and a couple of hundred dollar bills. That's what's in my wallet. Does that mean that me and Stan have to cut each other's throats because we have opposite beliefs? No, we can have a a civil conversation and come to terms of, hey, um, this is why I use them. This is why I think they're great. This is why I use them. This is why I think they're not great. It works for you. It works for me. And, and, And then we move on. And I think we just need more of this stuff in the real world. And I'm so happy Matt came on tonight and and we got to have this uh positive message. Uh, again, I pressed him as much as I wanted to. I think it was cool that he did a video on me. Uh like I said, I'm very flattered by that. I mean, I'm a nobody, so to have somebody uh, do a video on you is is very flattering. And then at the same time for somebody to do a a video on you and then uh come on and uh want to talk to you one on one, that's that's awesome. So, uh absolutely. I appreciate that and uh I love uh, every single one of you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, remember, move obstacles, keep investing.